Welcome to Thoughts on Record, podcast of the Ottawa Institute of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. I'm your host, Dr. P. Kelly. Each week, we explore topics of interest relevant to mental health clinicians and consumers. That said, if you're generally interested in psychology, the brain, dynamics of human behavior, and other aspects of the incredible journey that is the human experience, you've come to the right place. Now, without further delay, here's today's episode. Dr. Yoni Ashar studies the brain, pain, and emotion. He is a postdoctoral associate at Weill Cornell Medical College, and he completed his doctorate in clinical psychology and neuroscience from the University of Colorado Boulder under the mentorship of Dr. Sonia Dimogen and Tor Wager. Dr. Ashar's current focus is on psychological treatments for chronic pain. Other research areas include brain mechanisms of placebo effects, meditation and empathy using functional MRI and machine learning. His research seeks to understand how our thoughts and behaviors influence our health and to create neuroimaging research products with clinical applications. All right, Dr. Yoni Ashar, welcome to Thoughts on Record. How are you doing today? Good. Thanks for having me here, Pete. Yoni, I'm so excited to have you here today. I think chronic pain is emerging as one of the most misunderstood aspects of the human experience. And my intuition is that there's so much needless suffering as a function of not really understanding how much of a role psychological processes play in the experience of pain. I'm really, really excited to have you here today to discuss this important topic further, of course, through the lens of PRT. I think it's going to be a really interesting conversation. So just to begin, what is the origin of pain reprocessing therapy? What a great question. It sort of, uh, I was at the dinner when I got named pain reprocessing therapy. This was about a few years ago. I think of it, you know, as emerging from these different, you know, basically clinicians Alan Gordon is the main one, and he is a longtime chronic pain sufferer himself, who, uh, by reading some different books by other people and a lot of experimenting in his own symptoms, have put together a method for, for effectively treating chronic pain. And then uh, also working closely with, with Christy Weepy and Dr. Howard Schubiner, who are other chronic pain clinicians. And this thing kind of came together, didn't quite have a name. And then we were all having dinner and uh, pain reprocessing therapy was what stuck, what we came up with. So this was a few years ago. And then Alan and Howard approached um, uh, my doctoral mentor, Dr. Tor Wager, and said, we've got this new treatment. We think it's really great. We'd like to study it. Uh, can we run a study? And I was Tor's grad student at the time. And so that's kind of, that's how the, the study was born. And that's what's you know, put uh, pain reprocessing therapy or PRT on the map. Excellent. Thank you for that overview. And this is an area that I've become interested in, likewise, through my own experience of it as a chronic pain, uh, suffer a lot of back pain and neck pain. And it's just been so amazing to employ this model and see it work sort of in real time within oneself and to go through that that journey. So uh, me too, Pete, I've actually got my own pain stories that, you know, yeah, so it's so prevalent, right? So many people. It really is. And if I talk to my colleagues, it seems to come up a lot as well. And I have some questions for you very specifically around this, but it really does seem to be quite common among hard driving, perfectionistic, achievement oriented folks. They do seem to be afflicted by frequent bouts of pain. I've, I've been really struck by this both personally as well as with clients. Yeah, that is, um, that is something we see in the clinic. That's something that research studies support and association there. And we, we think that 
pain is really, um, you know, supported, promoted by the appraisal of threat. So when you look at the world and you see threats that can really support pain and that kind of personality style tends to kind of be oriented towards threats or can be oriented to threat. In addition to that, just while we're on this thread, how much do you think expectation or, or control maybe perhaps plays into that? A sense of like, I can only be okay if I'm not in pain or I should never be in pain. Like some sort of idealized version of the internal environment. And then of course the body's a noisy place. Things are going on all the time. When something happens, we might be more prone to catastrophizing about it because it's outside of spec, outside of parameters. Do you think that contributes to the threat piece? Absolutely. So. If you have a sensation and you say to yourself, oh, body's a noisy place, you know, who knows why my knee's a little funky today, whatever, and you go on, you know, chances are tomorrow you'll feel fine because the body is a noisy place. But if you have that same sensation and that triggers your, your threat system and you say, uh-oh, I've got a knee problem, maybe I should make a doctor's appointment and you go home and you go on Google and start Googling knee, you know, burning or whatever it is then you're going down this threat pathway and that will drive attention to the sensations and that will uh, drive avoidance of using the knee. And these will all, you know, feedback, create positive feedback loops that, that promote the pain. You know, I hadn't planned on bringing this piece in, but I think it might be helpful for the audience to hear it. But my own journey into chronic pain began with an overly exuberant leg workout in which I had tweaked my back and I decided to go see a physio pretty soon after. I'm going to say maybe three or four days. And the messaging that I received from the physio was very much aligned with, I think, the bad back narrative in the sense that, like, I'm, a, I'm an office worker or sitting in a chair, so I have this depleted back and there's imbalances and things and so on and so forth. And really the messaging was one of, you know, this is sort of a fragile situation. It's got to be treated very carefully. And it led me down the road, I think, to a lot of, uh, compulsive hypervigilance about posture and muscle imbalances and doing certain kinds of exercises and being careful about movement. And really, I think what ultimately should have been probably a week of, you know, discomfort turned into, you know, years, I think maybe three or four years of really a lot of suffering. Uh, and, I, and I want to be very clear, I'm not blaming the physio for that really what it boiled down to was my catastrophizing about the meaning of the pain, my own perfectionism, idealism, wanting things to be perfect within my body and not understanding uh, some of the dynamics around this. Wow. Um, that's so sad. It's so sad to me when, you know, providers who are meaning to do well may really be contributing to, to the problems, you know, iatrogenic uh, processes and, this is unfortunately also supported by the research. So there have been three studies that randomized people with back pain to either get an MRI or X-ray of their back and then get treatment by the doctor or get no MRI or X-ray and then get treated by the doctor. And, you know, which group do you think would do better? The group that had the benefit of, of additional imaging or the group that was not allowed to have any imaging? Like, I think most people would say, well, oh, what, what could be bad? You just get more information, get a scan and see what's, what's there. Uh, and in all three studies, the group that did not get imaging had better outcomes. And you think, how could this be? How could just doing a scan actually lead to worse outcomes? And it's what you're saying, Pete. It's something's going to turn up on the scan. 
um, oh, well, you know, this disc is a little bit protruding and, uh, and oh, maybe there's a little degeneration there. And that drives a cycle of fear and medicalization. And, you know, when often it has nothing to do with this disc or that, that disc or anything like that. So there is a real um, cost to, to medicalization. We, and there's, you know, it's one of the predictors in these studies that they take people who recently injured their back and they follow up with them years later and see whose back is still in pain. And then they try to predict, you know, from, from the time right after the injury, who's going to still be in pain years later. And, you know, getting a scan is a predictor of uh, long-term pain. Yeah, there's certainly a lot of narrative out there in terms of like, I'm air quoting here, like a bad back, right? And I mean, if, if, you yes. think, if you think about evolution, there's no way a bad back gets baked into an organism that's been evolving as long as we have been, right? It just seems implausible. I agree. Yes, this this whole idea of a bad back, oh, and it becomes culturally normative. You know, you say, I have a bad back and nobody looks at you funny and says, what are you talking about? You have a bad back. You know, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, have a seat. Right. So, so this kind of, this is cultural transmission, cultural norms around this idea that then make it more, more prevalent. Like your back starts to hurt and you say to yourself, oh, I must have a bad back now too. And then it kind of spreads. Exactly. Okay. Well, let's get into the weeds for a little bit, if that's okay. I'd really like to know how the experience of pain is conceptualized within the pain reprocessing therapy model. Sure. Before I answer that, I want to specify that PRT is for what we call primary pain, or um, that's the ICD-11 term, primary pain. We sometimes call it neuroplastic pain. It goes by many names. But the basic idea is that this is chronic pain that's driven by changes in the brain and you know, sensitization and brain pathways and contributions from, from stress and difficult emotion and pressure we put on ourselves and, and all this. And that's important to distinguish from uh, secondary pain, which is pain secondary to some medical problems. So you may have you know, diabetes, which has led to lesions in your peripheral nervous system, and then you have some problem in your body or you have a broken bone. So when we're talking about pain here, we're going to be talking about primary pain or neuroplastic pain. This is the majority of chronic pain. So most people with chronic pain have primary pain. And... Um, and that's an important, you know, distinction to keep in mind. Now, you asked about how we conceptualize it. So we conceptualize, yeah, you know, primary pain as driven by change, you know, by mind and brain processes. That this pain is a false alarm. And what we mean is that though the alarm is really going off, right? So pain is an alarm system saying danger, danger, danger. The alarm is really going off but there really is no fire. There's nothing actually wrong in the knee or the shoulder or the neck that's driving it. So I imagine that there's a quite a bit of psychoeducation that needs to go into helping clients to understand this because that is so intuitively different from the way that we typically think about pain. We think of it as being very much a cause and effect relationship, right? The acute pain experience of stubbing your toe and having pain makes, you know, that makes a lot of sense. It sounds like chronic pain plays by different rules. There's a different set of dynamics and mechanisms around that. That's exactly right. So it's so counterintuitive. Like a client I was seeing just a couple of days ago, you know, just had a really hard time wrapping her mind around this. She was saying, so you're telling me I have pain in my jaw, 
but there's actually nothing wrong with the jaw. So why, why do I feel the pain there? And it is so counterintuitive, but this is what the, the science shows that you can have pain in the absence of tissue damage, pain in the absence of any injury, because the pain pathways can get sensitized. One of, you know, one of my favorite metaphors for this is I say like, so say Pete, you're, you're driving your car and the engine light, it goes off on the dashboard. And now you take it into the garage and uh, the guy there checks it out and tells you, Hey, Pete, you know, good news. I checked out the car. There's actually nothing wrong with the engine at all. What happened is that the wiring between the engine and the dashboard got a bit too sensitive. So now the light's going off, even though there's nothing wrong in the engine. So we just need to decrease the sensitivity and then the engine light will go off because everything's actually fine in the engine. I love that metaphor. And I think one of the things that really solidified for this for me was reading some of Lisa Feldman Barrett's work around the brain predicting reality as opposed to detecting reality. So I think a lot of times when we feel pain somewhere in our body, it's like, oh, the, my, my brain has detected pain as opposed to the possibility that my brain is predicting the experience of pain based on a certain pattern of interoceptive sensation or activation. It's anticipating pain will be there. So it's projecting it in advance to warn me to get out in front of it. What do you think about that way of thinking about it? That's exactly right. So our brains are smart. They learn. Let's say you injure your back, you bend over, it hurts. Now your brain's like, okay, bending over is dangerous. Three months pass, the back is healed, but your brain doesn't necessarily update around that. And we can come back to that. Now you start to bend over and your brain's like, oh, this is a dangerous, I'm smart. I learned last time I did this, it was painful. Let me start creating pain too, to warn, to warn, you know, away from doing this motion that's dangerous. So it's this expectation, this learned association, which becomes a prediction uh, about pain that, that we think is a really big uh, piece of this as well. So in explaining the model to clients, how do you navigate the frequent perception that chronic patients have that they're being told it's all in their heads and them digging in their heels and saying, you're really invalidating me here. Like I'm in pain all the time. What do you mean? I'm just imagining this or some you know, yes. hearing, hearing something to that effect. Yeah, it's so important to emphasize that the pain is always real. And none of this research or none of this thinking um, contradicts that. And the opposite, it supports that, that, you know, the pain is always real and it's miserable and it's awful. We're just trying to figure out what's causing it. Is the cause really in the shoulder, some injury in the shoulder, or is the cause really in the pain processing you know, neural pathways? And, you know, some people will get, will, will feel, you know, invalidated by this, but a surprising number of people, in my experience, by far the majority find this deeply validating because so many people have gone from doctor to doctor to doctor and gotten different stories, none of which really makes sense. Nothing hangs together. And why is it that, why is it that? And then we give them this explanation, like, oh, neural pathways and learning central sensitization. And it's deeply validating for them. Like, oh, these people get it. They get what's causing my pain for the first time. When folks aren't able to benefit from this particular protocol, is the lack of buy-in around the pain not originating in tissue damage a major factor? Like if people aren't going to benefit, is that typically where the challenge lies? That is one of the big challenges. Yeah, that's one of the really big challenges is really... Um, 
yeah, really kind of wrapping, wrapping the mind around that. And, and we think that's important because it's really hard to, to stop being afraid of the pain and to stop avoiding the pain when you think there's actually something wrong in your body. That, you know, that perception drives fear and avoidance. And it's much easier to have a easygoing, lighthearted, mindful, curious, compassionate attitude when you have the perception that there's really nothing wrong in the body. Right. It's, I often think about like panic disorder when, I, when I'm thinking about this. So say you're treating a client with panic disorder. Um, and the first thing you got to do is say, there's nothing wrong with your heart. Right. Your body's healthy. This is your autonomic nervous system going to overdrive. If you told a person with panic disorder, you may or may not have cardiac problems. We're not really sure. Now let's try to deal with the panic. Well, every time they're going to start having a panic attack, they're going to, whoa, am I having a heart attack? You know, you need to be clear. Like there's actually, you know, the heart's intact. The heart's functioning well. There's no issue there. And, and having that clarity, you know, it would be hard to make progress doing CBT for panic if, if there was actually and not really buy-in around, around whether this was actually a heart attack or not. Well, I love that. I was, I was literally just going to ask you actually if one way of thinking about pain is almost like a combo of OCD and panic disorder where you've got the intrusive aspects of the OCD along with a lot, a lot of compulsions typically, you know, applying heat, massage, ice, all this kind of stuff. And then you've got the catastrophic misinterpretation that goes along with panic. So it sounds like it lines up with, with what you were just saying. 100%. I, I completely think of this form of pain, of primary pain, as uh, in the family of anxiety disorders. And, and the other one I throw into the mix is PTSD, in the sense where there is an injury, the injury heals, but symptoms persist for many years. So in PTSD, there's some trauma the trauma is past, right? The person is no longer under attack or being assaulted, but the symptoms persist as if that were still there in some way. Oh, I love that. Yeah. So really, if we think about all anxiety disorders are about projecting psychological pain out into the future in order to prepare for what might come, if pain is really sort of the same thing, it's projecting pain out into the future, preparing us for what might come. Interesting. Yeah. Yes. Projecting pain into the future and some way of like being unable to open to and tolerate like present moment experiences that are just too like overwhelming, like, like needing to shut down a panic attack, the sensations there or, or something like that. Exactly. Is there data around whether anxiety sensitivity or any of the things that we know will amplify the experience of traditional, let's say anxiety disorders also play a role in pain as well? That's a great question. Off the top of my head, I can't think of any studies looking at anxiety spe sensitivity specifically, but there is a lot of data looking at constructs like a pain catastrophizing or a kinesophobia, which is fear of movement. And then these all contribute to chronic pain and predict the transition from an acute injury to chronic pain. There's going to be a lot of clinicians listening, but there's always some consumers as well. For someone who's sitting there with chronic pain, and not that clinicians can't have chronic pain either, clearly, for based upon our yes. <laughs> what we've been talking about, but for someone who's sitting there in pain, maybe they've had investigations that haven't yielded any fruit, like imaging studies, things like that. Are there some telltale signs that the pain they're experiencing is not originating from tissue damage? 
I know for myself, one of the clues has been the pain moves around. It varies in intensity. I can, if I'm having a good time and moving in one way, there's no problem. But if I'm stressed out, that same movement will hurt. A lot of really fishy things start to kind of coalesce around the experience. Yeah, you're uh, you're brilliant. Those are three of the main ones. Okay, so <laughs> that's exactly right. So spatial variability, the pain moves around. Um, I'll add to that pain moving around like multiple, you know, the pain, like the spread of pain. So the pain started in my shoulder, but now it's kind of moving down my arm. So, so pain spreading is another factor. You mentioned uh, temporal variability, like some days it's there, some days, some days it's there, some days it's not. Um, the, what, what I call like context is a contextually sensitive. Like if you're in a good mood um, and with people you like, pain's not so bad, but then the next day um, you're in a bad mood, you're talking to somebody, you don't want to be in that conversation and the pain's starting to creep up, right? These are all indicators. Um, let me add a few more. Please. History of multiple uh, pain syndromes. So this is you know, someone, belly ache start at the age eight, headaches at the age 16, back, eight at, back pain at age 25. When you see this kind of pattern of multiple pain syndromes, you know, we say, well, what are the chances that you had a stomach problem at age eight, a head problem at age, you know, 16, and then a, a back problem at age 25 versus one explanation, much more parsimonious, is that there is some sensitization happening and how the body, how the brain's interpreting signals from the body. And that can, you know, provide an explanation for all this. Um, personality style, you mentioned this, you know, I don't want to at all say that personality is ever the cause of pain, but it can, it, you know, we do see an association between people with, you know, hard driving, high pressure, uh, personality styles and pain. So that can contribute. So these are some of the, the main indications. Um, you know, when, when I had back pain, I could run for miles with no back pain. And then I would stop and stand still and my back would start to hurt. And just like you said, Pete, there's something fishy about that. So anytime you see something fishy, like you could ask yourself, like, is this how a broken foot would behave? Like a broken foot, every time you step on it, it will hurt. It's not going to hurt one day and not hurt the next day. No pain in your broken left foot. Suddenly your right foot won't start hurting because the problem is in the left foot. So, so whenever things start to feel like fishy, like this actually can't really be readily explained by like a clear injury. That's when you suspect the brain is playing a role. Absolutely. I would add one more to that, again, purely anecdotal, but I would almost call it like a symptom substitution. So mm -hmm. I, I would notice when I would get a cold, my back pain would disappear. And as the cold would clear up, the back pain would come back in. Yes. Or if I became anxious, the back pain would disappear. And then when the anxiety passed, the, the back pain would come back. It's almost like there was some utility to having a symptom on board at any given time in order to displace something else that I, you know, my brain was trying to say, look over here, look over here. We don't want you focusing on this other thing. And I've done some, some of my own therapy work around finding out what those other things are, but I'm convinced mm -hmm. there's something to that. Yeah. Yes. We do see that kind of symptom substitution um, in the clinic often. And I love what you're suggesting that there's some kind of other deeper issue and that these symptoms can be a distraction. That, that, you know, to take our attention away from those. 
Yoni, are you familiar with any of the uh, intensive short-term dynamic therapy models around pain or somatic symptoms? I have some familiarity. So Dr. Howard Schubiner um, and Dr. Mark Lumley, who are close colleagues and friends and working in this space, are also like active in the ISTDP kind of research arena. And actually, Mark and Howard created a treatment for pain they called Emotional Awareness and Expression Therapy which is really um, closely related to ISTDP, I believe. Yes. I'm not myself trained in ISTDP, but I think it's amazing. Yeah, I think it's such a compelling model, like this idea that, say, an emotion that was not sanctioned in the family is, is about to come up. You might get pain as a response to let you know that anger is coming. That's unacceptable. Alarm goes off. You experience pain instead. And right, it's about sort of deconstructing what's going on underneath that. And it will get regulated in all kinds of different ways, right? Striated muscle, smooth muscle, ah. things like that. And what I've, yeah. what I've taught my own clients is when the fire alarm goes off, go check the fridge, right? It's like <laughs> the, the, <laughs> there's an adjacent process going on. So pain in your neck might also mean you need to be more assertive with your boss tomorrow because you've been subjugated by them in some way. I'm totally going to use that. When the fire alarm goes off, go check the fridge. <laughs> it's a signal. That, that's like we, we, have, we have people who go through our, our treatment telling us like they're almost grateful for their pain at the end because it lets them know that something like they got to go check the fridge. It's like, oh, my back's hurting. Gosh, there must be something that needs attention. Like, you know, it's exactly. <laughs> oh, I find it to be a great barometer of if my neck pain comes back or my back pain comes back. It's like, okay. What in the psychosocial landscape have I let slide that needs attention? And it's almost, it's always the answer. It's always the answer to getting rid of the pain. I have to deal with it. And then miraculously it disappears. It's just amazing to me how this works. It is amazing to me how this works, right? It's some kind of like, I, I almost you know, don't know quite how to think about it. Like some kind of, you know, say from a brain perspective, like some crossing of wires that psychosocial pain ends up activating back pain. Yeah. It's almost like yeah. this, the, the train leaves one station and ends up at a different destination and you have to kind of triangulate, okay, it was supposed to end up here, but it ends up here and I, you can reverse engineer what, where it was supposed to go. Mm -hmm. It might be from changes in, in, you know, it might be from like intersecting brain, you know, circuits for emotional and, and somatosensory processes. It, it could be that we start to clench our bodies when we have these difficult mm -hmm. emotions and that muscle tension promotes pain. There could be some kind of immune processes that get activated by these stressors that then inflammation creates pain. Like I would love to really try to like tease apart how that happens. Absolutely. So from the deployment of a PRT perspective, what does the therapy look like? What are some of the interventions that would happen over the course of treatment? What could a client expect? Step one is assessment. Do you have primary pain or not? Uh, super important. If you have, if you have some, you know, like tumor or fracture, you know, you got to deal with that, obviously. And um, generally, you know, and there are some people who have what we call mixed pain, where there is some injury or something happening in the body, and then there's a whole layer of central sensitization, mind-brain processes on top of that. Uh, we do believe that most people with chronic pain have primary pain where there really is no injury in the body. Um, and it's, you know, almost entirely mind-brain processes. 
So step one is assessment. And then step two would be getting the, the client on board with that. And we do that by providing personalized evidence. So all the factors that we just listed help people understand, well, the pain, when the pain moves around, gosh, injuries don't move around. Now, that's the brain. When you have these large swings in pain intensity from, you know, zero one day, the next day, 10, like that's just not characteristic of an injury or a disease, right? That's kind of the brain. The brain's doing its thing. Uh, these, you know, as noisy as the body is, the brain is far noisier and you can have a lot of, you know, changes from, from one moment to the next. Just think about how your mood can change so quickly. That's how quickly your pain can change. So, so step two is getting, you know, providing personalized as evidence to help someone understand that this is really, um, this is primary pain. And then, uh, and then comes, you know, uh, uh, one technique that we use a lot is called somatic tracking. And this is a way of paying attention to the pain uh, through a lens of safety. It's like an interoceptive exposure. So it's a way of paying attention to the sensations, reappraising them as safe and using mindfulness and uh, some kind of lightness or levity of mood. So like to cut the intensity uh, a bit as well. And then I'll just say the I'll just say the last two pieces, and you know we can talk about any of them. If it's uh, fourth piece, getting back into action, starting to move again, so important. Activities that have been avoided, start doing those activities. If you haven't been bending, if you haven't been sitting, you haven't been standing, you got to start doing those, you know, gradually. And then the last piece in PRT is dealing with the fridge. Would say you know seeing what else is kind of under the surface that could be contributing to the pain and trying to help people work with that and relieve that, you know, using any number of psychotherapeutic techniques or, or, or coaching techniques or whatever, just to help people, you know, address those other interpersonal issues or, or whatever it is. What's the typical length of therapy and can it be truncated for folks who might have limited uh, benefits through their insurance company? Is it the kind of thing you can land it effectively in four to six sessions or does it really unfold more over, I don't know, 12 to 18 weeks? What's the usual course of treatment? Uh, all things being equal. There's a wide range. I think that um, it can, you can have results within four to six sessions for sure. And for some people, it will take longer to kind of retrain those pathways and to bring down the fear and to start feeling safe again. So there, there's a wide range. It's hard to, to say, you know, I've seen people be cured in like one to two sessions. Um, as you know, kind of a crazy thing to say, but I've seen it happen. And then there's people that you work with them for a while and it's, it's slow going. I think this brings up a really good point. Like what is a reasonable expectation for clients who undertake this kind of therapy? Is it re actual relief from the pain versus just having a different relationship with the pain? How do you typically talk about that? Actual relief from the pain. And that is so important because that, that distinguishes PRT from a number of other treatments. Uh, like CBT and ACT generally focus on a different relationship with the pain, learning to live more gracefully with the pain, having the pain interfere with your life less. And PRT is going right after the pain. We're really trying to uh, reduce or eliminate the pain because we view it as you know, driven by these brain pathways, which are reversible and are plastic. And we can change those pathways and you cannot 
have it anymore. Just like, you know, with panic disorder, for treating panic disorder, you know, the goal is to, you know, really not have many panic attacks anymore. Maybe from time to time you will, but you're not continuing to have panic attacks the rest of your life and they just bother you less. You actually stop having the panic attacks or almost stop having the panic attacks. Yoni, in your experience, how common is it for clients and or practitioners to have this expectation that there is a relief from primary pain that's possible? It feels like, again, like many medical models and or mindfulness-based approaches really have a model, again, like you said, of more of adaptation. And I know in my own journey, I was just so dissatisfied with that. I was like, no way, this is not good enough. And which led me down the road of, I found Howard Schubner, well, Sarno, and then to Howard Schubner, who I've also had in the podcast uh, to talk about this kind of stuff. But my initial intuition was like, and maybe that's part of the problem, right? It's like, there's no way I'm just going to learn to live with this. There's a better outcome that must be available. But of course, that is part of the problem with pain is that the more you want it to be gone, the more that it st- sticks around in a sense, right? So anyway, I think you know what I'm trying to say, but that's yeah. That's true. How- but I love that. I mean, that's true. And I love your intuition that there must be more because you're right. There is more and it is relatively uncommon. Most, uh, when, uh, when a doctor has done their, you know, fourth surgery on a patient that's failed and they send them to psychology, they're not sending them to psychology for a cure. They're sending them for some, you know, pain management basically. And so that's the norm. We're really trying to shift that complete or near complete pain relief is possible. Um, and is more than possible is, you know, completely plausible and achievable with, with a psychological treatment. I think that's such an important point. So many clinicians have a scientist practitioner model. They really want to know what the evidence base is. Can you maybe sum up where the evidence stands to date as far as PRT goes? Because I think that could really help move the needle as far as establishing this kind of treatment as a norm, as opposed to something that is uh, emergent, let's say. Yeah. So there has been one RCT randomized controlled trial of PRT. I am the lead author of it. It was published um, earlier this year in JAMA Psychiatry. Uh, sample size was 151 patients, and we had fantastic outcomes. Um, the majority of patients were pain-free or nearly pain-free after treatment. And I uh, you know, encourage listeners to check out the paper. There's been a number of other, and we're now starting two to three other trials are, are hopefully going to get off the ground in 2022 for PRT, because of course, one study is not enough, but right. There's also a number of other really encouraging data points. Like for example, last year, there was a, a study published on a treatment they called PSRT completely independently from us. There was no connection. They just came up with their own thing. Uh, it has a lot of similarities to PRT. And they also found a majority of people were pain-free or nearly pain-free at post-treatment. And then if you start looking through the literature, uh, like I've done, there's a study from a few years ago on something called cognitive functional therapy, which is actually quite similar in in a number of ways to PRT. And people in that study had dramatic pain reductions as well. And there's other examples I could give you. So it's, I feel like there's been, there's a lot of uh, data points that are out there uh, you know, in terms of this treatment model, there's also a ton of data on central sensitization. This is from both our like rodent neuroscience and human neuroimaging showing how chronic pain really is a different beast in the brain and how the brain pathways can amplify and contribute to chronic pain. 
So on that side, the science is, you know, very, very solid. And on the treatment side, I would say there's like a, a really exciting early evidence base that we are working actively to, to build. Can you speak a little bit more to the neurobiology? Uh, I think that really resonates with people and people appreciate being taken under the hood a little bit to maybe understand more how this works at a brain level. I think it makes it more believable um, yeah. in, in some senses. Yeah. I think of two broad categories of brain changes. Um, one, maybe there's probably more than that too. Let me just, you know, so first is sensitization in canonical traditional pain processing pathways. So these are the, the pathways in the spinal cord and in the brain that normally process pain. Uh, this is like, you know, posterior insula, somatosensory cortex, you know, in the brain, and then the dorsal horn of the spinal cord, the fibers that carry the nociceptive signals. So you have sensitization in these pathways. So neurons that used to, you know, if they received uh, one input, they would send out one output. Now those the neurons that receive one input are sending out 10, a strength of 10 outputs. So it's like the gain of a volume gain. So that's one category of changes that there's just like the volume gets amped up along all these pathways because um, like, you know, one factor is like the, the, the age old principle of Hebean plasticity, neurons that fire together, wire together. The more these pain neurons fire, the better they get at firing. Pathway number two is the recruitment of non-pain pathways or non-traditional pathways that aren't really usually involved in pain. What I have in mind here in particular is medial prefrontal regions and uh, posterior cingulate regions, as well as some, some subcortical uh, structures that these are not what anyone would generally think of as a pain processing area. And if you take a, a healthy person and put them in a scanner and prick them or pinch them or slap them, you won't really see these regions engage. But if you but we see these regions come online with chronic pain. And these are regions generally related to learning and memory. And we see alterations, you know, that it's kind of like this sort of learning, memory, meaning-making pathways are getting engaged in chronic pain. And that's another, um, it's another big piece of it. A third important process is potentially uh, what's called neuroinflammation, which is the activation of uh, glial cells uh, in the central nervous system that can also promote pain. And that seems to be playing a role as well. And that's a pretty new area of research. Um, but that can, those, I believe, you know, data is slim here, but I believe those can also be, you know, damped down by psychological treatments. You can bring that down. Given the role that trauma can play, especially when it's experienced earlier in life with respect to sensitizing cognitive behavioral emotional responses to stressors mm. later on in adulthood. Anecdotally, many clinicians who treat trauma will note that many of their clients do report chronic pain of one kind or another. Do we know anything about how trauma could torque this process or accentuate it or allow for it to come online a little bit more easily? Yeah. Well, at the neurobiological level, it's a lot of the brain, same brain systems involved that you know see in pain and sorry in pain and trauma uh, medial prefrontal areas amygdala hippocampus 
you know, we know that trauma changes these brain regions and, and these brain regions also get involved in chronic pain. So, so that's one piece. And then at the psychological level, uh, traumas, traumatic experiences, uh, teach people that the world is a dangerous place and they need to be on the lookout for threats. And that kind of attitude is just a very fertile ground for any kind of pain to, to get chronified, to become chronic. Some sensation happens, oh no, that's a problem. And that, and that can fuel the, the pain. Within the PRT model, what do you see as the role of medication, including antidepressants, but also opioids, things like that? That must be an issue that has to be addressed pretty transparently and openly within the context of this kind of an intervention. So we believe that many people will not need any uh, pharmacotherapy to recover from pain. Uh, however, some people would definitely benefit from that boost, especially if there's also the, pre the presence of uh, depression, anxiety, trauma, uh, anything like that, that could be helped by an antidepressants or another medication that could, uh, you know, antipsychotic medication. Those could all, you know, support people and being able to engage with the treatment and, and change some you know, thinking styles and, and try to regulate emotions so they can engage in the treatment and do the work. So that could be, that could be great. Um, for the core work itself, though, we don't think medications are necessary. And, um, you know, and we would, I would hope that, that a successful round of a successful course of PRT would, would then support someone in tapering off opioids. So, one of the main reasons that people don't taper off opioids is fear of uncontrolled pain. So if you can use tools from PRT or related approaches and um, have quite you know, strong pain relief and feel quite confident to handle your pain when it comes up, then there might be much more willingness to taper off opioids. If I make the assumption that chronic pain is just one manifestation of this learning process that you've described... Are there other physical manifestations that might be understood through this model that could hold promise for people? Things like maybe chronic fatigue, uh, and then going back to the pain front, things like fibromyalgia, things like that. What do you think about the applicability more broadly? 100%. So chronic itch, dizziness, nausea, all these sensations can get learned. These sensations are all subject to the same you know, predictive coding mechanisms that we discussed that uh the you know the hypervigilance the fear and the avoidance the catastrophic interpretations these can apply to really any of these somatosensory any of these somatic sensations and we you know in the in the clinic we've treated a number of people with prt quite successfully that have had non-pain somatic issues like you know, dizziness or this itch and I would love to um, also start a study testing those as well one day. Excellent. That would be so exciting. Yeah. Yoni, I just want to give you the last word. Is there any message that you'd like to convey around PRT or any, around pain just in general that you'd like the audience to ponder or take home with them? The pain is real. You know, the pain is always real. And it might not be caused by what you think is causing it. And if that's the case, it's really good news. 
because if it is primary pain, then we really have some great tools for, for treating it. That's so wonderful. I Well, I really hope this model takes off in the biggest kind of way, not only for pain, but just as a way of thinking about all these other symptoms that we talk that we you just spoke about. There's so much suffering out there that is being sort of medicalized in a sense when really the origin is much more uh, psychological, I guess, if we can put it that way. So I really hope that in general, as a healthcare community, we can wrap our minds around this and be more open to these explanations. I think you're really right, Pete. And the change... And I'd want to see heaven from both sides. On one side, less medicalization, and the other side, for psychologists such as ourselves to feel confident stepping into this arena and working with someone and saying, oh, right, so this is what's happening. You know, this, you don't need to see a doctor. This is what's happening. Right. As some psychologists often will be reluctant. They'll feel kind of it's out of scope to work with, with pain or nausea and, um, or itch. And that, that's something that um, I'd like to see that shift. I'd like to see psychologists getting the training they need to, to work with this. So speaking of, if people do want to learn more about PRT, they want to become competent in the delivery of this protocol, where would you direct them? What's the best pathway to get there at this particular time? So to get training in PRT, we have the, the pain, reprocessing, pain Reprocessing Therapy Center. Um, you can just Google that, and there's a great training that happens through there. Um, there's also, and this is now for, for clinicians and for, for people with chronic pain, there's a, a book out, a self-help book. It's called The Way Out by Alan Gordon that I highly recommend. And there is an app called Lin Health, L-I-N uh, dot health, that is a great app that's um delivering these ideas and techniques and strategies and you get a coach and you get a medical provider who will help work with you to, to diagnose your pain. So I'm, I'm really excited about that app as well. Wonderful. Well, Yoni, thanks so much for joining me today. This was a wonderful conversation. I think there were so many threads we could have pulled on, but of course, with the constraints of time, we tried to get to the heart of the matter, but thank you so much for your expertise today. This is so exciting. Uh, yeah, my pleasure, Pete. This was this was great, and uh, you have a lot of insight into this. And it's great to see psychologists and you know jumping in and spreading the word. And there's a lot of hope here. Absolutely. Well, again, thanks so much. We'll hope to talk to you soon. Great. Thanks, Pete. Well, I really hope that you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. If you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. And now for the mandatory disclaimer. This podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Kelly and that of his guests. Content of the podcast should not be taken as psychological advice and is for general information only. Please consult your mental health professional for any specific questions around your psychological health. In no way does listening to our content establish a psychologist-client relationship. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. All people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect patient confidentiality. Finally, this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast.